We are still looking at the life of Jacob. What a rascal this fellow is. He was, even as he was born, he was grasping for Esau's heel, trying to get out first. As he grew up, he was a deceiver, a tricker. He, he fooled his father into giving him the blessing. He cheated his brother Esau out of his birthright. And then he runs off to escape his brother's wrath. And he, he's, he's going after things. He knows what he wants. <clears throat> God has promised to bless him with certain things. And those very things that God has promised to give him, Jacob seeks to go after and get himself. And so he tears into Laban and starts working for things like a wife and a wife and then working for sheep and, and all of the things that he needs. And, uh, you know, he just, he just isn't doing so well on his own. He's a, he's a guy who takes a lot of initiative and he's a hard worker. And, uh, you know, when he sees something that needs to be done, he steps forward and does it. He doesn't wait. It hasn't all worked out very well for him, though. But we see him getting better don't we? Jacob's getting better. Jacob's giving credit to God for the things that are taking place in his life. Jacob's listening to God when he says, I want you to go back home and I'll be with you. He's getting better. It's, it's Godward change in Jacob's life. We're, we're kind of watching this man come to God, as it were, and he's coming. But he's not quite there yet. Now, as we begin in chapter 32, Jacob is, Jacob is going to be coming to his father. I think we're going to see that. And Jacob is coming to his home, the land that his father has promised to him. We're going to see those things happening in verse chapters <clears throat> excuse me, 32 and 33. And as we do that, we also see a little bit of Jacob in ourselves. I think we do. We don't want to admit it. But I think we see a little bit of Jacob in ourselves. We see how we too must come to the Father. We see how we too sometimes resist. We see also how, how our Father is determined to bring us home. He has purposed that he will bring us home. To a land, to a place where we will be with him. Just as he promised Jacob, and that has an impact in your life. If you know you're going somewhere, and you know where that place is and who's there, it's different than not knowing. It'll change your whole life, whether you're knowing you're going somewhere or don't. And so the context this morning, Jacob, remember, he's fled from Laban. He's obeying God to return to the land with God's promise that God will be with him. This is all good stuff. But on his way to his father Isaac's, he will surely have to deal with his brother Esau. Sooner or later, and Jacob being the kind of guy he is, true to his own personality and character, he takes the initiative to go ahead and make it sooner. <laughs> Esau's going to find out sooner or later, I might as well go and approach him. And so that's, that's where we are here in chapter 32 of Genesis. I'm going to read, if you follow along in the sermon outline, I'm going to read this in three sections as we march through them. First, the first 21 verses of chapter 32. I'm actually going to pick up just at the very end of chapter 31, in verse 55. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters, and he blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau. Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, Flocks, male servants, and female servants, I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We have come to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp, and attacks it, 
then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown me, your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and he said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, greets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself that night stayed in the camp. So as we noticed last week, Laban departed and went back to his home, and Jacob goes his way to return to his home in the land. And on his way, the angels of God met him. That seems like kind of a big deal to me. What's happened? What did the angels do? What did the angels say? Moses doesn't tell us. So we get to make up whatever we want. No, we don't. That's not Bible reading. But we do have some clues, I think. I think we can, I think we can look at some things and, and maybe reason some things. Remember, remember Jacob's vision at Bethel. He saw angels descending from the heaven on the ladder to do the work of God and then ascending from earth, having completed their assignment from God. These angels didn't come to Jacob for no reason. They came for some reason. God sent them to do something. Maybe, maybe this is what the psalmist would write about later in Psalm 91. See if you remember these words. He will deliver you. He will cover you. You will not fear the terror of the night, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Surely, the angels were a great encouragement to Jacob. Whatever they said, whatever they did, surely Jacob was strengthened by the presence of God's angels, God having promised to be with him. After Jacob's vision in chapter 28, remember, he said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God and the gate of heaven. And he called the name of that place Bethel. And having been met by the angels of God, he declares here, This is God's camp. And he names the place Mahanaim. See, I think Jacob's fortified. This is not God's camp, as in a cabin up north on the lake where he fishes. This is God's military camp. The angels have gathered, and Jacob's confidence is increasing. You and I look at this and say, gosh, I wish, I wish Monday morning God's angels would come and meet me before I head off to work. If I could just see angels encamped around me, I wouldn't be afraid then. I wouldn't be nervous then. I wouldn't be anxious then. I wish God would give his angels charge over me Brothers and sisters, he has. 
He has. Just as Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 1, verse 51, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending, doing his work on the Son of Man, Jesus himself. I mean, let me ask you, why wish to see angels? Why wish to see only what Jacob saw when Jesus himself has promised you that he is with you? Jesus has promised that he will never leave you nor forsake you, so you should never fear. God doesn't make Esau disappear for Jacob. Jacob will have to face Esau. And God does not take away our fear by taking away our reason to fear. He takes away our fear by giving us greater reasons not to fear. Like Jesus is with you. So Jacob sends his messengers to Esau to say that he's coming back from Uncle Laban's. And Jacob's goal is to find favor in Esau's sight. He genuinely desires favor in Esau's sight. His message to Esau, it's very respectful. It's very deferential. He wants Esau to look upon him with favor. We can use the same word grace. He he wants Esau to look upon him with grace, with favor, instead of with the desire to kill him. It's been 20 years since Esau threatened to kill his brother Jacob. 20 years since Rebekah said to Jacob, Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you. A lot can happen in 20 years, can't it? A lot can happen in 20 years. But Jacob doesn't know. Jacob doesn't know if Esau is still mad or not. So when his messengers return to report that Esau is coming to meet him with 400 men, Jacob is greatly afraid and distressed, and we would be too. This may just be a story to us. Well, Scott, we've already read it. We know know how this is going to turn. It's just a story to us, but it's real to Jacob. He's filled with fear, and he does two things. As a cautionary measure, he divides his one camp into two camps. So he takes everybody and everything, and he splits it into two. We can, we can call them the sacrificial camp <laughs> and the saved camp, right? We can kind of do that uh, because the sacrificial camp is kind of the one out front, where Jacob's going to be. So if Esau attacks, he'll attack that camp and he'll wipe out that camp and that's the camp you don't want to be in. The saved camp is way back. It's, it's just over the hill, beyond the horizon. They have a, see, they have a chance to get away if Esau attacks the first camp. He'll attack the first camp and say, hey, I wiped out Jacob, but still half of Jacob's people will get it. That's the better camp to be in. Is this just Jacob being clever? Well, it is clever. It it might save half his family. But I don't think this represents Jacob's old self-reliance. I don't think it represents that. I think it will highlight Jacob's favoritism. But look at what he does next. See, Jacob's in real trouble, real fear, real danger. He's greatly afraid. And finally, Jacob prays. Jacob acknowledges that God is the same covenantal God of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. He approaches them this way. He recognizes God as the God of Bethel, who has called him to return to your country and to all your kindred, that I may do you good, he says in verse 9, which is slightly different than the wording that he used before. In chapter 31, verse 3, we read, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Here, Jacob, Jacob kind of turns that a little bit. He rewords that a little bit and says, I'm to return to the country and my kindred that God may do me good. That's interesting because Jacob is convinced now that God is with him, not only to protect him, but to do him good. We might say God's presence is Jacob's good. Jacob's good. 
which leads him to confess. Oh, isn't that a sweet sound coming from Jacob? It leads him to confess that he's not worthy. He's not worthy of the many blessings that God has given him and that he has received. He's finally getting a clue that he doesn't deserve God's love and that there's no reason for God to be faithful to him other than God's own choice. He's taking the posture of God's servant. Not Laban's servant. Not his own typical self-service, but God's servant. And he pleads with God saying, Lord, I'm so afraid of Esau. I have to deal with my brother whom I've sinned against, and I'm so afraid. Have you ever prayed like that? Ever been afraid? Ever taken it to God? Ever prayed like that? God, I'd, God I don't want to die. Jacob doesn't want to die. Jacob doesn't want his family to die. But that, even that, is not what he bases his prayer on. He bases his prayer on God's promise to him. Lord, but you said that you would make my offspring as the sand of the sea, a multitude that can't be counted. But now I've got to deal with Esau. Oh Lord, won't you deliver me from the hand of my brother because of your promise? This is a different Jacob. This is a Jacob who's, this Jacob who's fleeing Esau now is different from the Jacob who crossed the Jordan with nothing but his staff 20 years ago. He's humble. He's repentant. And believing in God and relying on God's promises. This Jacob is clearly moving in a more Godward direction. Don't you agree? So Jacob stays there in God's camp and makes preparations to reconcile with Esau. Again, this isn't Jacob scheming to trick Esau in some way. This is actually a model of repentance and repayment for the purpose of restoration. Jacob decides to give Esau a present of 530 animals, if you add them up. Flocks of goats, lambs, camels, cattle, donkeys both male and female, organized to multiply. This is, this is going to be a gift of flock that's going to keep on giving in a bigger flock. It's a lavish gift. I mean, God really has prospered Jacob for him to be able to give this gift away. And Jacob instructs his servants in exactly what to say when they encounter Esau, one after another. Don't make up words on your own. Here's what you're going to say. Wave after wave of presents... Driven by a servant who will say, we belong to your brother, Jacob. And, and he himself is coming right behind us. So, so here's a little contrast. Remember when, remember when Abraham would enter the land and there would be a king or a pharaoh and he would tell his wife to tell them he doesn't belong to Abraham. Sarah, don't tell, don't tell him you belong to me. Isaac did the same thing with Abimelech. Rebecca, don't tell them that you belong to me. Tell them, you're, tell them you're on your own. Keep me out of this. Protect myself. Jacob says, nope, tell them that you're mine and that I'm coming behind you. I'm on my way. You know, that's pretty helpful battlefield intelligence if Esau wants to plant an ambush on Jacob. <laughs> He's coming. Set up over there or over there. He's coming. Jacob has intentionally made himself vulnerable to his brother whom he's wronged. That's, that's part of repentance, isn't it? Verse 20 is the key to our understanding of what's going on here. Look at verse 20. For Jacob thought, I may appease Esau with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. I think there are four important words in this one sentence. Remember, remember for a second... So that Moses has just delivered Genesis and the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, to the children of Israel who are encamped on Jordan's stormy banks preparing to enter and take 
possession of the promised land. Remember, that's his first audience who's reading this. So they've read not only Genesis, but they've read Leviticus. And these four words in Genesis 32, 20 sound a lot like words that they've read in Leviticus. Jacob hopes to appease Esau. That word appease means the same as to satisfy or to propitiate one's wrath in Leviticus. Jacob hopes to appease Esau's wrath with a present, a gift. That word present means the same thing as an offering or sacrifice in Leviticus. The present will go ahead of Jacob. And then Jacob will see Esau's face. He will see whether Esau has a face of favor towards him or not. Favor towards what end? Acceptance. Restoration. In Leviticus, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's acceptance by God. It's a restoration with God. Here, it's with Esau. In Leviticus, this is the same way sinners approach God. In true repentance, with a sacrificial gift. They hope to appease the wrath of God for their sins against Him with a gift, an animal sacrifice, which goes before them to bring about God's favor or grace so that He will accept them as His people and give them the promised land. Jacob is using that same pattern of repentance here for the purpose of restoration with Esau. We see it too. You can see this. It's a gospel pattern. It's the pattern of repentance and faith by which sinners are reconciled to God with the blood of Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. Jacob thinks that the biggest thing he has to deal with in his life is Esau. Jacob has always thought that the biggest thing he has to deal with in life is the people in front of him. Esau, or Jacob, he had to, he had to deal with Isaac and Esau 20 years ago to get his blessing. He had to deal with Laban for 14 years to get a wife and children. He had to deal with Laban another six years to get his flocks. And now Jacob thinks that the biggest thing before him to deal with is Esau. But that's not true. The biggest thing that Jacob has to deal with, above all others, is God. Isn't that true for all of us? Jacob is changing and moving in a more Godward direction, but he's not there yet. It's not that Esau's coming, it's that God is coming to deal decisively with Jacob, which will impact everything. After that, imagine for a moment you read as we read down to verse 21 of chapter 32 and then just skipped to chapter 33, verse 1. The story would just flow perfectly. These next verses are an insertion. They're a break in the action to do something meaningful. This is where the change takes place. Here's the weight of the passage. This is what is going to impact everything that happens Afterwards in Jacob's life, beginning in verse 22. The same night, he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. 
Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. So Jacob sends all of his wives and children and flocks and servants, it's everything he has across the river. He stays back, and at night. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Oh, no. Is it Esau? Has his brother gotten the jump on him with a surprise attack at night? I mean, that is, after all, the confrontation that we're expecting. But that's not the main event. Before Jacob deals with Esau, Jacob has to deal with God. This man wrestles with Jacob all through the dark night until the breaking of the day. Notice that imagery. I mean, Moses wants us to see that this wrestling match is transformational from dark to light. This is the turning point in Jacob's life. And that is what will have a sunny outcome for, for Jacob. If we look forward to verse 31, the sun rose upon Jacob and he passed Penuel, which is the face of God. I mean, it's, it's going to be a sunny outcome for Jacob. Now, now, this is no mortal man. This is a man sent by God. Some take this to be a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Remember that Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, plus two angels coming to his camp at the Oaks of Mamre in Genesis chapter 18. We call that a Christophany. But I take this man to be an angel. You know, it's exciting to think of the Son, the second member of the Trinity, supernaturally breaking into history in the Old Testament before his incarnation. That's what John Calvin thought about this encounter, that this was Christ. You may think so too, and that's defensible. I just want to be careful not to think that we're somehow more spiritual to think that it's Christ than an angel. Augustine argues that whether the word and the will of God is revealed by God himself, as he did in the burning bush before Moses, or Christ himself, like when Abraham interceded for Sodom, or as an angel, as when the commander of the Lord's army appeared to Joshua with instructions to defeat Jericho, they all carry the same weight. They all carry the same force and authority. The angel has come to do God's work with Jacob. Earlier in Jacob's life, God revealed to Jacob that he would see angels ascending and descending on the ladder to accomplish God's purposes on earth. And here is one. The prophet Hosea comments on this exact passage in Hosea chapter 12 and verses 3 and 4. He writes, In the womb, Jacob took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. So whether this is the Lord or the Lord's angel, the first we see of him is that he's already wrestling with Jacob. It's dark. Oh, there's a man and Jacob's wrestling. What does God want that Jacob has not already given him? I mean, Jacob is... Jacob is believing, Jacob is obeying, Jacob's praying, Jacob's relying. What does God want that Jacob has not given him yet? Himself. Jacob himself. Jacob, deep down, has kept in his own heart with his own little bit of self-reliance. Look at him. He is... Physically striving with God. He has not yet given himself fully to God. He has not given him his heart. A quick read of this might give the idea that Jacob beats God and steals another blessing. That's, that's not what this is a picture of. That's not the case. Obviously, this man has the power to overcome Jacob and prevail in any way. Because all he did was touch him in the end and boom, down he goes. And Jacob was never going to win the wrestling match. The nuance that we need to grasp is that Jacob is not fighting against God because he rejects God in some way. Rather, Jacob is striving with God in a losing battle, trying to maintain his, 
self-reliance for as long as he can. He's trying to hold out for as long as he can, but God has come for Jacob's heart. God's come for his heart. And when daylight came, Jacob was still fighting. The angel had not yet prevailed over him. You dads know what this wrestling match is like. If you've got boys, you know what it's like to wrestle. They're, they're little, and, and you know just how much strength, because you're bigger, uh, to exert, and just what moves to make to hold them in check. You know how to do that wrestling so that you don't win too soon, and they don't win too soon. But when the time comes, like dinner time, it's time to end the match. So daybreak comes, and the angel tells Jacob, let go. Jacob won't let go. So with a touch, the angel dislocates Jacob's hip. Match over. And that's not cheating. <laughs> that's the power that the angel has. That's the power that this man has. That's the power of God to prevail in this wrestling match for Jacob's heart. Jacob is, Jacob's just that kind of guy who requires a wrestling match to prevail in his life, for God to prevail in his life and to transform Jacob's heart. Let's do a little comparison real quick. When the Lord called Abraham, Abraham said, here I am. When the Lord told Abraham to go to a land, Abraham went. When the Lord told Abraham he was in the land, Abraham built an altar and worshiped God. Jacob's not like Abraham. When the Lord called Jacob, Jacob said, oh, this is an awesome place. When the Lord promised to bless Jacob, Jacob set out to bless himself. Having experienced God's grace for 20 years, only now, because of his great fear of Esau, does Jacob ask a blessing from God who has already promised to bless him. There's nothing to steal. It's here to be given. And yet God still has to wrestle Jacob for his heart. And by God's grace, he does. He sends this angel to do just that, to prevail in Jacob's life. Don't miss this. God's electing love, even if it requires a wrestling match, is for you. For you. He will strive with you for a time, but he will prevail. And by his grace, you will prevail also. See, that's the, that's the trick. It's that word prevail. The only things that Jacob was ever going to prevail in are the things that God chose to prevail him in. Did you see what I did there? <laughs> see how I turned that word around? The things that God chose to prevail him in. After the angel dislocates Jacob's hip, Jacob is holding tightly to God, no longer to take, but to receive. You see, it was always the greater who blesses the lesser. That's how it works. For 20 years, Jacob ignored the God who wanted to bless him. Now Jacob will not let go of the God until he blesses him. The wrestling match is over, but why does Moses point to Jacob as the one who prevailed? I mean, that's kind of what it looks like, doesn't it? Jacob's prevailed. How? Well, the answer is God's grace. God's grace. The result is that Jacob has prevailed in God's subduing of him. That's how he's prevailed. And so the angel says, what's your name? I'm Jacob, what's your name? Deceiver, trickster, liar. Not anymore. From now on you shall be called Israel, which means that you've striven with God. Jacob has striven with his father Isaac for a blessing, and now he's striven with God for a blessing. And by the grace of God who blesses, he has survived. That's what Jacob has done. He's survived. Listen to how Jacob himself describes the outcome of the match in verse 30. He says, I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Jacob doesn't think he overcame the angel. Jacob doesn't think he beat God. His, his life's been saved. He's been delivered. Jacob has prevailed in this way by being delivered by the grace of God. And so he names the place Peniel, which means the face of God. Having dealt with God, or God having dealt with him, whichever way you want to look at it, the sun rose upon Jacob, and as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. This is the mark that Jacob will carry with him the rest of his life. He is not self-sufficient before God. He limps before God, but God is gracious and blesses him. What, what about this limp of Jacob's? Is that, I mean, is that just a bit of interesting narration? 
I don't think so. Moses didn't think so. The children of Israel established a memorial because of Jacob's limp. Every time they ate a leg of lamb, they remembered that the Lord touched Jacob's hip and subdued him and delivered him so that Jacob, not Israel, would prevail in God's gracious covenant blessing. Jacob, who's now Israel, think of them on the stormy banks, right? Of the Jordan getting ready to go across. And they look and they say, look what, look what God did. He prevailed over Jacob so that Jacob might prevail. And he's doing the same with us. He's our God that we might prevail. Now, God having dealt with Jacob's heart, Jacob can deal with Esau in a godly way. With proper courage in the face of fear. Which is the next part of our story beginning in chapter 33, verse 1. I'll read to, to the end of verse 20. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with all her children and Rachel, and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. And Esau said, "What, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that it is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, And because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I'll go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, "Mm, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booze for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. And Jacob came safely into the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money a piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. So Jacob has arranged a parade in this order. First, herd after herd after herd after herd of animals. Then, Jacob himself, behind Jacob, in the first camp, the potential sacrificial camp, followed by the potential saved camp, way, way in the back, camp number two. It's a clever precaution on Jacob's part, but it's not without problems. I mean, who made Jacob's A-list? Who is in the second camp, safe? Away in the back, out of Esau's sight, his wife Rachel, whom he loved, and his favorite son Joseph. No surprise. And who is fearfully aware that they are on Jacob's B-list. Who are the expendables right behind Jacob in plain view of Esau? 
his wife Leah and her children. How do you think Reuben and Simeon and Levi will remember their first encounter with Uncle Esau? When they grow up, do you think they might feel just a wee bit bitter towards Joseph? Well, we'll find out in chapter 37. Jacob lifts his eyes to see Esau coming, riding hard with 400 men. This is the point of tension. What's going to happen? It comes the, the clash of two camps. Is Esau still determined to kill Jacob? A lot can happen in 20 years. A lot has happened to Jacob in 20 years. He's a changed man, bowing, bowing seven times before his brother Esau as he approached. And so it's a great surprise when Esau brings his army to a halt, dismounts, and runs to Jacob to hug him and kiss him, and together the two brothers weep. It's surprising, maybe shocking, and delightful. Esau's forgotten about the blessing of God that Jacob had stolen from him. But Jacob is trying to give it back. Over and over he says to Esau, you're my Lord. I'm, I'm bowing down deferentially to you. These are, these are all God's blessing before me. All this company represents the blessing of God. And, and he, here's, here's his instructions, or, or rather his introductions. You know, he, he introduces Esau, Jacob introduces Esau to his wives and children that God gave him. The mandrakes didn't give it to him. God gave them to him. Esau, Jacob explains, these are his flocks that were given to him by God. Not, it wasn't the whittled sticks that gave it to him. It was God. And all this company represents the blessing that Jacob stole from Esau. And he's trying to give Esau the blessing represented by the 530 animals. It's a huge present. And Esau says, eh, I've got enough. Keep it. It's not necessary. He has enough of his own. In this, we see that Esau has no lasting desire for the blessing of God. He was really upset when it was stolen. He was mad. He was killing mad. But he has no lasting desire for that and no real concern for the promises of God. He's fulfilled all of his own promises with his own nation, Edom, his own people, his own flocks. And his mother, Rebecca, was right. In time, Esau will forget about it. In time, Esau, Esau's anger would turn from Jacob. She knew her son. That's just the kind of guy Esau is. But Jacob has been transformed from a taker to a giver. God has been gracious to him, and he appeals to Esau to let him be gracious to Esau. And so Esau accepts the gifts, and Esau accepts Jacob. All of this by God's grace. Now Esau wants to continue on this journey onward with Jacob. Hey, Jacob and Esau together again. Come on, brother, let's, let's go forward together, shall we? Hey, let's, let's ride together. But Jacob puts him off. Esau seems a wee bit suspicious. Hey, I'll, I'll leave some of my men with you. How about that? Jacob says, oh, you're too kind. You're too kind, so helpful. But please, favor me in this way. You go your way, and I'll go mine. See, Jacob is a changed man, but Esau is not. Sooner or later, the seed of the woman will clash with the seed of the serpent. Because Jacob is going God's way, and Esau is going his own way. So Esau returns to Seir in the hill country of Edom, and Jacob enters the land. And he goes to Shechem, and he buys a plot of land called Sukkoth, and he names it El Elohi Israel, which means God, who is God of Israel. Because God has safely settled Jacob in the promised land, just as he said he would. You know, it's interesting that when Israel leaves Egypt, so we're talking Exodus time, the, the people who are the first readers of this, when, when Israel leaves Egypt in the Exodus, the first place they go is Sukkoth just as the first place that Jacob went, is Sukkoth, Exodus chapter 12, verse 37. So this Israelite audience who's reading this, they have reason 
an encouragement to trust God, to do for them what God did for Jacob. Right? Right. Which is to make them victorious in their conquest of Canaan and safely settle them in the promised land. Because that's what God's called them to do as they're poised on Jordan's stormy banks to move over and take the land. What about us? What about us? What have we seen in Jacob's life that instructs us this morning? Let me, let me press home just three final thoughts. The Lord is carrying out his promise of a seed to Abraham in Jesus. This is, the, this is the big overriding theme of all of Genesis, right? We keep running up against it time and time again. One of the best and most useful things in your daily life is proper perspective. Like Jacob, we can think that the only thing happening in the world right now is what's directly in front of us, what's directly challenging us, when the most important thing happening in the world right now is that God is bringing about His will as it is expressed in His Word. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. That's what's happening. Second, the Lord has come to defeat our self-sufficiency so that we might prevail in Jesus. If you're wrestling with God night now for control of your heart, submit. You cannot defeat God. And why would you want to defeat the God who wants to bless you? Why would you want to be Jacob at that point in his life? God does not choose to wrestle with everybody. It's very important. So if he's wrestling with you, something's going on. He did not choose to wrestle with Esau. He just let Esau go his own way. If God has chosen to wrestle with you, it's for your good. Strive with him until he dislocates your self-reliance. Then, hold on to him, and he will deliver you by his grace and prevail you in his blessing. That's the kind of prevailing you want in your life. You want God prevailing you in his blessing. The sins of others are not what must, the sins of others are not what you must prevail over in this life. You're worried about that. Oh, so-and-so did this, so-and-so said that. Look at the world, look at everything that's happening. Look, look, at how, uh, look at how the prices are impacting my life. Look at, look at all of this stuff. You think that the sins of others are the thing that you must prevail over in this life, but it is your own sins that you must deal with first. And you are unable to deliver yourself. You are the sinner. But Jesus is the deliverer. On the cross, in the darkness, he wrestled your enemy, sin, by his righteousness. And he defeated your enemy, the devil, as the atoning gift of sacrifice, the present to God. He bore your sins before the face of God, and God turned his face away from him so that all who believe in him would see the face of God. The grace and the favor and the acceptance and the forgiveness of God all come through Christ. You will not prevail against God, but God will prevail you in Christ, if you will submit to him. Lastly, this one is in the form of a question. Are you trusting the Lord to bring you safely home to the promised land? Are you trusting the Lord to bring you safely home from the promised land? God has promised us a land it is the new heavens and the new earth which he will take us to at the glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is, is that on your calendar somewhere? Do you think about that land? Do you wonder if it really exists? 
do you doubt that you'll ever make it there? Or are you sure of its existence? And certain of your arrival one day? We sing through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace that brought me here thus far, and grace will lead me home. Let those verses from John Newton give you hope and perspective. Let these words of Jesus to his disciples in John 14 be our perspective. Let these words of Jesus be the greater reason not to fear those we must deal with in this life because God has dealt graciously with us. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going? And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know the way you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. What a great assurance. What a great reason not to fear. What a great Savior we've been given who by the grace of God has prevailed over us that we might prevail in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your grace towards sinners like us. Thank you that you save those who say, here I am, Lord, let me worship you. Thank you that you save those who you must wrestle with year after year after year after year into submission that they might prevail in your grace. You are patient and long-suffering. You are loving and saving. And we bow down before you. Seven times we bow down in completeness before you. Take our hearts. Take our affection. Take our very selves. And use us for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.